0: It's so good to be back at uh, Salem Fields. Uh, I shared with the folks in the early service that uh, last year's revival probably was one of the most memorable revivals I had that laid an incredible foundation for the rest of the year of revival meetings. And I just want to thank you for allowing us to be a part of your church again. It is so good to have my wife with me and to share in this part of the service. Uh, Thank you, buddy, for your confidence in us and for inviting us to come again uh, your pastor had an influence on me uh, last year when I was here. I have bought my first uh, pair of chucka boots as a result <laughs> of your pastor. Uh, I saw the ones that he had on last year, and I thought, I want a pair like that. And so I got some for Christmas this year, and I want to thank you for that influence in my life. <laughs> uh, Gretchen doesn't travel with me every week Uh, because of cost restraints and flying and all of that Uh, but when she does travel with me uh, she sings with me and we're going to share a song with you it's probably as I said earlier in the early service one of the most powerful songs I think I've ever tried to learn and I hope that you'll listen very closely to the lyrics.
1: We've all done things that we're not proud of Made mistakes along the way Walked the path of least resistance Travel roads that led to shame But there's no need to be held captive Beneath the weight that blame can bring Just pour your heart out to the Savior He alone can break the chain There is freedom and forgiveness There is peace and sweet relief Grace and mercy now are waiting When you bow at Jesus' feet Grace and mercy now are waiting when you bow Jesus' feet. Grace and mercy now are waiting when you bow at Jesus' feet.
0: Exodus chapter 14. And if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, also Exodus chapter 15. And then locate the book of Ruth, four chapters. Book of Ruth chapter 1. You probably are familiar with the setting. The children of Israel have been in Egyptian bondage for over 400 years. And now, under the leadership of Moses, they have been led out of Egypt. They're facing their first great obstacle, the Red Sea. And as they stand there along the shores of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army is fast approaching from the rear. And the people begin to murmur, as we noted last night in the service. They begin to murmur and complain Why have you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? Were there not enough graves? in Egypt, that we should die here. Then God spoke to Moses, and we pick up the story, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with the wall of water on the right and on their left. Now turn to the next chapter, verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. And they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people began to grumble against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. Now, Ruth chapter 1, beginning with verse 19. Speaking of Naomi and Ruth. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me? Naomi, the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Father, we're so thankful for the privilege of standing before this congregation to share your word. And your word calls what I'm doing this morning the foolishness of preaching. But what a wonderful opportunity it is to be able to take the word of God and with the aid of the Holy Spirit cause it to be applicable to our lives. I pray tonight, Father, or this morning, Father, that you would come and you would just flow through the word I don't know why you laid this truth on my heart for this service, but I believe you did. And Apparently, there are some in this service who are struggling. And I pray that they might know that no matter what they face, in this new year, you're bigger, you're greater than what they face. Nothing surprises you I pray, Father, that you would give me that ability to speak in a way that's clear, that honors your word. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Who among us in this service this morning has not at some point in our lives had to deal with disappointment? If I were to take a poll of the congregation and say, how many of you this morning, over the last... 24 hours, over the last 30 days, over the last year, 2015, have had to deal with things you thought you would never have to deal with in your life. I'm sure that many of you would raise your hand and say, yes, I went through something I thought I'd never have to face. Edith Schaefer, the author of a book and the wife of the great Francis Schaefer, she authored her own book titled Affliction, And in the book, she makes the observation that every affliction in life falls into one of two categories, either too much of something or too little of something. No one journeys through life without having to deal with emotionally debilitating events. Some disappointments that we face in life are greater than others, but great or small. They all have an emotional impact upon us. Look at the scripture in question that we read a moment ago, especially that found in the book of Exodus. We find there these two events in the life of Israel. And on the one hand, they are looking at the waters of the Red Sea. And you would agree with me as they stood and looked at that massive bottle of water, knowing that Pharaoh's army was fast approaching from the rear, and there were no bridges, there were no boats. There was too much water. No way to navigate through it, across it. Too much Water. And then we notice one chapter later, they're there in the desert of Shur, three days after God has miraculously brought them through the waters of the Red Sea. And they stand there in the desert, and there is water, but it is bitter. They can't drink it, it's poisonous. On the one hand, too much. On the other hand, too little. Here's what I'd like for you to consider this morning in this message. We serve a God who can not only change our circumstances like he did for Israel in chapter 14, but we also serve a God who can give grace to sustain us when we're trying to figure out the bitter waters in chapter 15. I think one of the great prohibitives for many of us Christians in consistently serving the Lord is that we have settled for a one-dimensional God. You say, Lane, what do you mean by that? By that I simply mean we only want a God who will change our circumstances if he can just remove the financial problem, if he can take care of the relational situation, if he can deal with the job problem that I face, we just want a God who will come and just make all of that right and good. Don't get me wrong this morning. I believe in the God of miracles. I believe in a God who can change circumstances. I believe in a God who can part the waters of the Red Sea. I believe in a God who can heal blinded eyes and give life to lame lambs. I believe in a God who can give lockjaw to a bunch of lions in a lion's den so that Daniel can get a good night's rest. I believe in a God who can change the circumstances, but I also believe in a God who is multidimensional, who meets us on more than one plane. Sometimes he is the God who parts the waters of the Red Sea for us. But he is also a God who gives grace to sustain us when we're in the desert. And we don't know how we're going to make it. And the water's bitter. How are we going to survive? Consider the Apostle Paul. We know his name. He was a man of great faith. He was a man who established churches, perhaps one of the greatest preachers besides Jesus Christ that we have record of in the Bible. He was a man of faith. But yet if you study his life, you will discover that he had a thorn in the flesh. And on three different occasions, Paul went to God and said, Would you please remove this thorn from my flesh? And three times, God said, No. I'm not going to change your circumstance. Have you ever wondered what Paul's thorn was? I had a Bible college professor who suggested that Paul's thorn was his eyesight, because in writing to the Church of Galatia, he just makes the passing remark at the end of that letter, see how large are the letters with which I write. And so there was speculation that maybe he had weak eyes. I had another suggestion given to me that perhaps the Apostle Paul went against his own advice and Got married, and his wife was his thorn. We won't go there. I have a man who serves on my ministry board. He and I were discussing uh, the healing. Factor in the Bible and whether healing is in the atonement. And we have varying opinions on that. And I said, well, what about the apostle Paul? And he said, well, I don't believe Paul's thorn was physical in nature. He said, I believe that it was emotional. I think it was psychological because I believe, he said, that Paul was asking God to remove from his mind the memory of all the persecution that he put the Christians under before he himself became a Christian. Fact of the matter is, we don't know. But Paul was a man of great faith. But yet God said to Paul, I won't change your circumstance, Paul, but I will give you grace to sustain you. And even Paul made the remark, his grace is sufficient for you. And I wonder sometimes why we Christians can't get that. Why don't we understand that? There are times when God is already working out the solution before we even bring the situation to God and the problem is solved. The dry ground is before us and we are delivered and the answer is clear. But there are other times God says, I love you. My compassion is very real for you, but you're just going to have to trust me. Just trust me. You see, the God who gives the miracles and parts of the waters of the Red Sea is also the same God who stands with us as we look into the bitter waters of life that seek to ruin and destroy us. And he says, I have not left you. I'll never leave you. I will not forsake you. You see, if Israel had just remembered that, I believe the people of Israel had the shortest memory of any people in the Bible. One day, God parts the waters of the Red Sea. They pass through the Red Sea on dry ground in the span of one night. Three days later, they have no water at at best. The water is bitter and they cannot drink it. And they begin to murmur and complain. Wouldn't it have been better if they would have just looked at the bitter water, looked at Moses and said, hey, this is no big deal. God parted the waters of the Red Sea the other day. Certainly he can take care of bitter water here that we need for we need something to drink. Why didn't they say that? Wouldn't that have been better than all of the murmuring and all of the complaining? Write this down. In your memory bank, there will be disappointments in life. Disappointments with people. Disappointments, maybe even with the church. There I even suggest there'll be disappointments with God. So, how do you deal with them? How do you manage those disappointments that are going to come as you navigate? through life, even as a Christian. Four things I want you to consider regarding dealing with disappointments. And the first is this. Remember it. God is real in the midst of life's disappointments. You see, we must realize whether in blessing or whether in affliction, prosperity or pain, God is still God. He is with us. And should he choose to change our circumstance... We rejoice in that, but should he choose not to change our circumstance, his grace will sustain us. Folks, if you don't get what I just said, there's nothing the world can offer in its place. God is still God. He is with us. And should he choose to change our circumstances, praise him. But if he does choose to change our circumstance, he promises his grace will be sufficient. If you grasp that fact, no matter what you go through, there is nothing that can make you stumble. But if you don't get that fact, there is nothing out there that can sustain you and get you through it. I come from an incredible Christian heritage. I've mentioned my mother and my father and some of the other sermons that I've shared with your congregations. And my mom was just a great lady. She was a prayer warrior. This happened back in the decade of the 80s. My mother became deathly ill. My father took my mother to the doctor and the doctor put my mother in the hospital and they put her through a regimen of tests. And then the doctor finally came back and told my father, Reverend Loman, your wife is deathly sick and there is no cure. She's going to die, and rather than her just staying in the hospital, why don't you just take her home? Just take her home. Let her die in familiar surroundings. And so my father took my mother back to the house there in Salisbury, where they lived in North Carolina. He called my sister Janice in to give some assistance in caring for my mother. Mother was so weak and getting weaker every day. She was cognizant. She knew what was going on around her, but she could not take any solid food. They kept her body hydrated with just ice chips. My dad was scheduled to conduct a revival meeting in Cartersville, Georgia, in a United Methodist Church there. And he walked into the bedroom where my mother was and said, Elizabeth, I'm going to call the preacher there in Cartersville. I'm going to tell him that I'm not coming. I can't leave you like this. And my mother, with what energy she had, just above a whisper, she said, Harold, don't do that. You go and hold that revival meeting. There might be someone who would get saved that would not have gotten saved had you not held the meeting. She said, if I die while you're gone, they'll let you know and you can come home. But take great courage in knowing that I'm with the Lord and there'll be a day when we'll be together. And the following Sunday morning, very early, way before daybreak, my father said, I kissed my mother goodbye. He said he kissed Mom by and and got in his car, started on Interstate 85 toward the South Carolina state line. And he said, I prayed by the mile for my wife. He said, I finally arrived at the state line of Georgia, pulled off into a service station, got some gasoline. He said, the burden regarding my wife lifted just a little bit. He said, I drove on into Atlanta and around on the north side, picked up Highway 41, drove up to Cartersville, Georgia. And when I arrived there, he said, I fully expected for them to have the message waiting me that my wife had died. And he said, but there was no message like that waiting me. He said, I went on into the church, was greeted by the pastor. We had the first revival service. He said, as soon as the service was over, I walked into the pastor's office picked up the telephone and dialed our home phone number 704-636-1957 he said to my utter amazement my wife my mom answered the phone as she always answered the phone good morning or good afternoon Lomans. and my dad said elizabeth is that you She said, yes, Harold, it's me. He said, what has happened? She said, oh, you should have been here this morning. (laughs) It was amazing. She said, about daybreak, a large white canopy settled down over my bed in my room. She said, the presence of God was so real. And she said, I just there in my bed reveled in his presence. She said, it just tarried for a while, and then all of a sudden, as quickly as it had appeared, it disappeared. And she said, when it disappeared, All the sickness left my body and all of the energy that I had lost, all the strength that was gone returned. She said, I got out of bed. I called Janice from the other bedroom. I went into the kitchen. I fixed breakfast for Janice and myself. We've been to church this morning and we're going back again tonight. God came and he touched my body. You see, I believe in a God who can change circumstances like that. Fast forward to the year 2000. It's a Wednesday night. Dad's already gone home to be with the Lord. Mother's living alone. It's Wednesday and her daughter-in-law, Donna, as is the custom, would come by and pick my mother up and drive her to church on Wednesday night. And when Donna walked in the house that evening, my mother was sitting there fully clothed, ready for bed with the exception of her shoes. And Donna said, Ms. Loman, I've come to drive you to church. And my mother said, Donna... I don't know what to do next. She said, "Miss Loman, go to your room and get your shoes on. Then we'll go. Mother disappeared down the hallway but did not come back. Donna found her sitting on the side of the bed. And my mother looked at her daughter-in-law and said, Donna, I don't know what to do next. It was obvious something was wrong with my mom. She was talking to the doctor. She was admitted to the hospital and I remember standing in the hospital room where my mother was lying in that bed and I looked at her doctor, the attending physician and I said, doc, what's wrong with my mom? He said, your mother has ischemic brain disease. I said, what's that? He said, it's the narrowing of the arteries that lead to cognitive reasoning in the brain. I said, can you fix my mom? He said, No. It'll only get worse. I remember visiting my mom in the hospital. They were doing a variety of tests on her and we finally had them stop doing that because it was not helping. I would go to my mom's room and I remember sitting there one day and I would spoon feed her lunch to her. She would mechanically open her mouth as I would feed my mother. There was a faraway look in her eyes. She was somewhere else. But every once in a while, the arteries would open and mom was mom. And we'd sit down with mom and say, now mom, we need to tell you what's going on. You've got this disease. And the arteries in your brain, they constrict. And when they constrict, you go somewhere and we don't know where you go. And my mom would look at us and say, is that a fact? (laughs) She just has such a wonderful spirit and an attitude about it. So I fed my mother her lunch that day and I left. Gretchen and I drove back to Greensboro where we lived at the time and Later that day, I called the hospital and I dialed into mother's room, and my sister in law, Donna, answered the phone. I said, Donna, how's mom? She said, I'll let her tell you. And mother took the phone. I said, Hi, mom. She said, Hi, son. I said, Oh, mom, it's so good to talk to you like this. She said, It's good to know who I'm talking to. (laughs) (laughs) That was the kind of spirit she had about the whole thing. But those moments became few and far between. I remember the last time she recognized me. I remember my sister stepping forward and saying, I want to take care of my mom in these last days of her life. And we moved her into sister's home in Burlington, North Carolina. And I remember the last day I walked into that room and placed a kiss on my mother's forehead and told her, told her goodbye. Told her I'd see her again. And she had just scribbled into a fetal position, just nothing but skin and bones now. And she died within a matter of hours. God didn't change our circumstances. But he gave us grace. He gave my mom dying grace. He gave us keeping grace, sustaining grace. I'm so glad that God is real in the midst of life's disappointment. You see, God meets all of us at different points of need in our lives with different degrees of grace and truth. Sometimes, I repeat, he parts the waters. Other times, he makes the bitter waters tolerable and gets us through those difficult times in our lives. Now, quickly, fast forward to the book of Ruth, and notice what's going on here. It's It's a remarkable story. Time will not allow us to get into the meat of the story, but let me ask you something. Do you know what the name This will make it more meaningful. Do you know what the name Naomi means? It means full, blessed, content. Full, blessed, content. She lived in Bethlehem, Judah, with her husband and two sons. And one day a famine came to Bethlehem, Judah. And so they made the decision, we're going to go to Moab. Because the famine is not there. And so they went to Moab. And while there, her two sons married two Moabite women. And then, as fortune would have it, her husband died. And then after her husband died, her two sons died. And then after her two sons died, the famine that was in Bethlehem, Judah, followed her down into Moab. And one day, she says, why stay here? The famine's here. I'm going back to Bethlehem. And she tried to get Ruth and Orpah to stay with their people. They were Moabites. Orpah says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my people. Ruth had told them, there's no way that I can marry again, have two more sons, and they grow up, and you marry them. I'm too old for that. That was the custom, by the way. And so Orpah says, I'm going to go back to my people. But Ruth looks at her mother-in-law and says, no, not me. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And so now, here we see Naomi walking into Bethlehem, her hometown, with Ruth following her, attached to her like a wad of gum on her sandal. Uh, She just can't get rid of her. Uh, She wouldn't stay with her own people. Uh, And the people there see her walk into the city limits and say, can this be Naomi, full, blessed, content, Naomi? And Naomi says, don't call me that. Don't call me full, blessed, content. Call me Mara, bitter, God has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. (laughs) There's no question in my mind this is one upset lady. This is one bitter woman. She might even, you could say, be mad at God because nothing panned out. Nothing worked the way that it was supposed to have worked. But you see, at that moment, she did not realize that God was working in her life. That brings us to the second point, and these other three will be quicker than the first. In our times of disappointment, God may be doing more than we realize at the moment. God has a wonderful perspective on things. He has a wonderful unlimited viewpoint of things. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem during the barley harvest. You see, Naomi was at her end. She thought the end of her life, nothing to live for, no reason to be happy. Nothing had gone the way, as I said, the way it was supposed to have gone. And I think one of the great temptations that you and I have is to believe that when we go through times of disappointment, it's over. Throw up our hands in frustration. Where's God? Might as well quit. Can't go on. But with God, I submit to you. Hear it well. With God, the end of anything can always be the beginning of something even better. I'm living proof of that. I used to could not talk about it because of the conservative background from which I came. And I'm not here to air any of my own history to my own life, hoping that you'll feel sorry for me for that's certainly not the purpose. But I went through a very difficult time in my life in 1995. I watched my family fall apart at the seams. I watched my wife of 23 years walk away with someone else. And I had a son at age 10 and a son at age 16. I was at the end. What am I going to do? Who's going to want a divorced evangelist to preach a revival for them? And those were difficult days. He didn't change my circumstances. He didn't heal the marriage. But the end of anything, when you serve him, the end of anything can always be the beginning of something better. My sons are grown and married serving God today. God brought into my life a beautiful lady whose husband had passed away after she had been married to him for 31 years. And you've seen today the results of what God did in our lives. You see, with God, the end of anything can be the beginning of something better. When a situation, a relationship, a job, anything comes to a resounding crash, the door slams, the window falls shut, and we say, I am nothing. I am all used up. I'm bitter. God wants to say this is not the end. This can be the beginning. Here's the third thing I want you to remember about disappointment. Perspective is absolutely essential when facing disappointment. Perspective. Let me give you an elementary teaching on perspective. Your church Beautifully decorated for the holiday Christmas season. It's a beautiful tree back there in the back. Do you realize I can make my thumb bigger than that tree? I can hold my thumb up like that, close my right eye, and pull my thumb back toward my left eye, and right about there, my thumb is bigger than the tree. It's all about perspective. Perspective. You see, when you go through times of disappointment, let me tell you what the enemy will try to do. He'll try to take the disappointment and he'll put it right back there in front of your eyes to where that's all you can see. Every morning you wake up and there it is. All through the day, trying to get through another day, whether it's at work or whether it's with the family, there it is, the disappointment staring you right in the eye. But with God... When we trust him, when we believe in him, you know what he does? With the power of his Holy Spirit, he takes that disappointment and he pushes it out there. It's there, but we've got perspective on it now. It's there, I have to deal with it. I'm gonna work through this with God's help. He'll see me through this because I've got a pastor who cares about me. I've got a church family. They'll hold me up in prayer. I've got loved ones who know how to call on the name of Jesus in my behalf. And that's how I made it. It wasn't of my own strength. I was beaten. I was weak. I was trodden down by the events of life and the decisions of someone else. And it was not me that brought me through it. It was the prayers of a sainted mother and a godly father. It was the prayers of brothers and sisters all across the country that loved me and cared for me, that prayed for me, that brought me through my time of disappointment. You see, we must keep proper perspective when we go through times of disappointments in our lives. This old woman and this young woman's arrival in Bethlehem was a necessary event. I'd never seen this before. A necessary event in the plan of God to bring about your redemption. From the moment that God spoke these words in the book of Genesis, he will crush your head you will strike his heel. To the cry of Jesus at Calvary, it is finished. God was putting into place a line of people, a lineage to bring about your redemption and my redemption. You see, Ruth would marry Boaz in this story. God would move the plan one step further. Do you realize that Jesus is of the house and the lineage of David? We know that. And David was the great great grandson of Ruth, a Moabite, not a Jew, not a Hebrew, not an Israelite, a Moabite. Perspective Every person that's ever experienced the incredible blessings of God has also experienced life in the vortex. Life in the hard place where disappointments come that can literally wring life right out of you. But perspective helps, helps us acknowledge that God has a bigger plan than the disappointment I'm facing. Finally, when dealing with disappointments, we must make a distinction between the events of life and the person of God. It's critical that you get that point. We must make a distinction between what's happening to us and the person of God. Let me just tell you something that's very simple. It's not theological. It's right down where rubber meets the road kind of truth. Here it is. Life is not fair. But God is good. God is faithful. God never leaves me. He never forsakes me. He is faithful. And you need to remember not every little detail, an event of life is engineered by a sovereign God. We want it to be. We want God to be so in control of our lives that he micromanages Everything going on in our lives, but that's not the way it is. Bad things happen to good people. Last June, I received a phone call from my son. Maybe it was a text. Winston. My son Winston attended Westland Christian Academy in High Point, North Carolina. His principal was Mr. Tim Rickman. Wonderful man. Tim Rickman had a son by the name of Lee Rickman. And Winston, my son, and Tim Rickman's son, Lee, were classmates, went to school there together. Tim graduated, or Lee graduated from the school and went on to college, got his degree in education, came back to his alma mater to be a teacher. 25 years old now, traveling with a group of teenagers from Westland Christian Academy to a Central American country on a missions trip And on their free day, he was standing watching the young people enjoy their free day activities. Standing under a tree with no explanation. A tree limb just broke loose from the tree. Hit him in the side of the head and killed him. He said that he was dead before he hit the ground, but there was not a mark on his body. 25 years old. Life is not fair. But I listened to Tim Rickman, Lee's father, talk about the grace of God and talk about the knowledge that he knew that his boy was in a better place. You can't do things like that without the grace of God. You can't stand in the face of that kind of loss. I can't imagine what it would be like to say goodbye to my sons. Life is not fair. But God is good and things happen in this life because we live in a broken world. But our hope is that when life treats me unfairly, God treats me well. When life administers the blow, God administers the grace. When life knocks me down, God always picks me up. Look at chapter 15 in closing. Interesting thing takes place now there in the desert of Shur. Then Moses, verse 25, cried out to the Lord, showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Do you recognize the word typology? Just in case you don't. Typology, here's a definition. The doctrine that things in Christian belief are prefigured or symbolized by things in the Old Testament. For instance, children of Israel were murmuring again God became angry, and he brought snakes into the camp of the Israelite people. And they were being bitten by these snakes and dying by the hundreds. Finally, the people of Israel cried out to Moses, go to God on our behalf. And God listened to Moses, and God said to Moses, take a pole and then form a bronze snake Hang the snake on the pole and tell the people that everybody that looks at the snake on the pole will not die. The pole is a type of the cross. The snake is a type of sin and Satan saying to us in symbol that Satan and sin is dealt with through the power of the cross. The Lord showed Moses a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. The piece of wood is a type. It's a type of the cross. Saying to you and me, when we take the cross and we push it in the midst of our disappointments, there is nothing that Jesus can't handle. If he chooses to change our circumstance, we praise him. But if he chooses not to, and he gives us grace, we rest in him and we trust him. One of my favorite verses of scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and allow me some liberty in quoting it. No disappointment has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be disappointed beyond what you can stand, but will with every disappointment make a way of escape. Father, that's our hope. When we face the disappointments of life, that's our hope. And I pray that if there is someone here this morning facing the uncertainties of a a new year and they brought something into this service and they just don't know what they're going to do, I pray that they might find their way to the front of this auditorium and say, Lord, if you could change my circumstances, that would be great, but even if you don't, I'm gonna trust you. And just bring whatever it might be that's heavy on their heart to this place of prayer Minister them, I pray, in a very special way. This morning. We're trusting you. We're believing in you. Jody's going to come and play with our heads bowed and in an attitude of worship. I invite you to come. This is your time. Bring the problem, bring the disappointment. Trust him today with it, would you? Just get up and come. This is your time to respond to the word.